This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. The title of Jesse Isinger's 2017 book is well known in securities and enforcement circles The Chicken Shit Club. Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. This title arose from a 2002 meeting of the Southern District of New York prosecutors. Jim Comey, relatively newly appointed as the U.S. Attorney over the district, interrupted the normal procedure of the meeting to ask those present, who here has never had an acquittal or a hung jury? Please raise your hand. Story goes, many proud attorneys shot their hands up to show their skill and ability to their new leader. However, Comey had a different take on that metric. Me and my friends have a name for you guys. You are members of what we like to call the Chicken Shit Club. This sentiment and the dozens of cases and stories outlined in the Chicken Shit Club show Jesse Isinger's investigative reporting laid bare. He believes that many decisions across enforcement circles lead to the decision not to prosecute individuals leading the companies that are known to have violated specific regulations. We're excited to have Jesse on the show today, not only to discuss his book, but his ongoing investigative reporting at ProPublica and a recent credit as a writer on HBO's hit show, Succession, today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's great to be with you, Chris. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We, we made it another year. I, I, yeah, <laughs> we're coming up on our two-year anniversary, huh? That's, That's right. That's pretty amazing. That's right. Uh, stay tuned for more details on, on that. Um, you know, it's good to see you again. It's been a couple of weeks since we had our, our party with, you know, Commissioner Purse and Jane Norberg and some of our favorite academics out there. Um, yeah, but it, some, yeah. some, some folks have complained on Twitter about the hangover from the virtual cocktails, so we're glad to <laughs> put that in the past and start fresh here and hopefully a dry January for many of us. Yeah, exactly. Or we're kicking off the new year in a very excited way of great fashion. We're going to sit down and talk with Jesse Eisinger today uh, about the Chicken Shit Club, about succession and, and some other things that he's reported on over the years. I'm excited for this one. And I say, hey, let's just go ahead and, and get right into it. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Jesse's work, here's just a quick bio for you. So Jesse Eisinger is a senior editor and reporter at ProPublica. He's been an, an investigative journalist for years now, covering the financial markets in Wall Street. He's written stories for The New York Times, The Atlantic, New Yorker, Washington Post, The Baffler, The American Prospect. He's been on NPR's This American Life. Uh, and before joining ProPublica, he was the Wall Street editor of Condé Nast Portfolio and a columnist for The Wall Street Journal, covering markets and finance. In April 2011, he and a colleague won the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting for a series of stories on practices on Wall Street that contributed to the Great Recession, and they used digital tools to help explain the complex subject to lay readers around the country. 
Jesse also won the 2015 Gerald Loeb Award for commentary. He's also twice been a finalist for the Goldsmith Prize for investigative reporting. I mean, this is this is quite a resume here, Chris. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I should just keep my mouth shut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we got three more pages, right, Kurt, to get through here. Yeah, let's yeah. just flip through them. Uh, as you mentioned, he wrote the, the Chicken Shit Club, one of my favorite books. Actually, we're going to talk more about that and HBO's Succession. Uh, Jesse, we're really excited to have you on the show. Thanks for making some time. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, Jesse, you know, we want to get started. You know, it's it's great to see what I think is is a is a very storied career, obviously, as we talk to. How did you first get started? I, you know, Columbia University is, is where you you did your studies and then you jumped right into kind of the reporting regime. Talk to us a bit about how you got involved in the investigative journalism period at that point in your life. Yeah, well, this is where I'm going to lose all credibility with your listeners because, um, you know, I, I essentially majored in uh, Ultimate Frisbee in college mm-hmm. um, uh, <laughs> and um, had no idea what I wanted to do coming out of it and fell into journalism um, when I was living abroad in Chile and uh, uh, and started uh, with my first job in journalism where I was translating the biggest news stories of the day uh, from Chile to a group of readers in um, around the world in, from Spanish into English. And uh, the guy who hired me asked me how my Spanish was, and I truthfully told him it's improving. Um, I uh, didn't tell him that I didn't actually speak any Spanish. Um, so, uh, so, I, and I had no journalism experience. So, uh, it was my first job in journalism, and I and I got fired about three months later. Mm. I, it's pretty impressive that I kept it going for that three months. <laughs> I think. Um, uh, and then um, became a reporter for a English language business newsletter run out of. Chile. Um, and so, you know, I had, I'm an academic brat um, and had no real experience with uh, business or finance. So I essentially, that first year, learned the world of journalism, Spanish, uh, business, and finance all at the same time, more or less all disastrously. But uh, fortunately, very few people actually read that newsletter. And so, um, so I was able to make all those catastrophic mistakes without uh, most people noticing. It's, it's a great story. Um, you know, in some respects, maybe that that set you up for success when you came back to start writing about the economic meltdown that sort of happened here in the in the late aughts in, in the U.S. Uh, a little bit. I mean, you know, that was in uh, this is going back a ways. I'm, I'm old now. That was in 2000. No, sorry. 1992, 93. What I think set me up for success was a lot of early lack of success. You know, I I plugged away as a journalist for a long time, paying my dues and making a lot of mistakes and working for, you know, newswires, newsletters, newswires, startup publications, uh, learning the craft and figuring out what was interesting um, and how to report and how to source up. Uh, And I never thought, of myself as an investigative reporting hmm. re- reporter, really until I joined ProPublica, and I never really even aspired to something like the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it didn't even occur to me. Um, so I, I, my kind of lack of ambition 
professional ambitions, I think actually helped me because I didn't have all this pressure on mm. that I put on myself mm-hmm. in my twenties to, you know, perform better than I could then. I, you know, there are a lot of people who come out of school and have extraordinary talent and I see them now. We hire them and I'm very impressed by them, but that was not what <laughs> the talent or, or skill um, or maturity that I had then. I couldn't have done the job that I do now then. So eventually you started, you know, writing about the financial markets, about Wall Street. I think, you know, for us, for for our listeners, um, some of the things you started writing around the Great Recession, you know, in 2007, 2008, were were really noteworthy. Actually, some of them, I think it's remarkable how you almost appeared to have a crystal ball. So, uh, I mean, as early as November 2007, you were sort of writing about Bear Stearns and, and maybe suggesting that there were there were problems there. Um, you know, you wrote one article, and I'll you know I'll, I'll read the last line because I think it was brilliant. But you said there is an end of an end of era feel to the whole thing. After all those years of investment bankers being mistakenly lambasted as rogues. It will be ironic if the moment Wall Street finally embraced its reputation became its undoing. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Turned out to be a little prophetic. Um, and that, that, Kurt, right, was months before Bear yeah, Stearns and, and Lehman Brothers before. got in, involved. So. so, I mean, how were you, how were you getting plugged in? How were you getting, getting these scoops at the time? What was your reporting like? Yeah, I was very proud of that story on reflection. It was, you know, there was a lot of skepticism about the bubble from from years before 2008 in certain currents of the market. And I was plugged into those currents. I were at the Wall Street Journal where I was, I, I worked for the Wall Street Journal from 2000, 2006, roughly, uh, almost 2007. And in 2005 and 2006, I was writing a lot on subprime mortgages. Um, and there were a lot of people who were shorting those companies and watching the bubble um, and in fact, I think around 2005, 2006, the subprime companies blew up and I actually sort of thought, well, I kind of missed subprime. So I moved on to option arm mortgages, if you remember yeah. that, um, and those, and, uh, those seemed like real time bombs too. Um, so there was an enormous amount of skepticism about the bubble, um, and skepticism about the housing bubble in particular. And there was a lot of journalism about that. I was a contributor to it, but I certainly wasn't the only one. But the as the credit bubble was building, there were a lot of skeptics. Um, you know, David Einhorn was a skeptic of Lehman Brothers, um, pretty famously. Um, and there were a lot of people in the hedge fund world who were shorting these investment banks. And I was plugged into that in 2006 and 2007. I don't think even I grasped the enormity of what was going on. I certainly didn't grasp the enormity of what was going on. Um, and many of the the, guy, the sources that I was talking to didn't understand it. So when I was, I like nailed that uh, prediction. I said, Bear Stearns was the most vulnerable. Then it was Lehman and probably Merrill and even possibly Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Um, and that was you know published in October, 2007. Uh, you know, the new November 2007 Condé Nast portfolio ar- uh, article. But even I didn't understand what that would mean to, or, you know, I couldn't fathom what that would mean. I, it was the first real f- global financial crisis I had ever experienced. I'd experienced the bubble in 2000, uh, you know, the NASDAQ bubble bursting 
um, which actually, you know, oddly enough, didn't have huge mm -hmm. um, implications for the global economy or the capital markets or society. You know, there was a recession, but. I had been seeded there to understand there were bubbles and they could burst and they could cause a lot of harm and destruction. So I was on the lookout for them. I was conditioned to it. Um, when the bubble was building in 2005, 2006, I was watching it and very skeptical. But even, you know, even the most skeptical people really didn't understand the full implications of the collapse that was coming. Well, it sounds like you were there both early and, and your reflective pieces afterwards are what the, the Pulitzer Award was was for, along with your, your co-writer, Jake Bernstein. Um, did you kind of have any you know back and forth with some of the, the folks and the, the institutions you were covering in terms of exposing their dirty little secrets as, as you did some more reporting on what really led to that, that bubble bursting in 2008? Well, yes, but I actually consider that piece from 2007, the, the, this prescient piece, actually a journalism failure of mine, hmm. because once, once the bear collapsed and Lehman collapsed and we had the cataclysm of the fall of 2008, I didn't really write a very serious excavation of what had happened. And I, at that point, I kind of fetishized trying to anticipate things that were going to happen and kind of denigrated analysis of things that had happened mm. in my sort of journalism attitude. And so I had kind of moved on and I realized that I had kind of not told the full story of this. Um, and in fact, what happened was sort of happenstance that kind of salvaged or rescued me, which is that two guys from Planet Money, Adam Davidson and Alex Bloomberg, if you remember the Planet Money podcast, yeah, of course. they came in and they had done an, a really remarkable show called The Giant Pool of Money that I had nothing to do with that was also a really prescient piece about the building credit bubble and incredible storytelling, just really, really rich and entertaining and very clear. And they came to ProPublica before I'd actually officially been hired, but I came to the meeting because I was about to join. And they said, you know, we want to know what the bankers knew about this and when did they know it? You know, that classic investigative question. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's a really good question. And I was teamed up with Jake, who I didn't know. And we sort of went off and they said, why don't you guys go off and, you know, try to answer that question and come back to us with what you know, and we can make a radio show out of it. And we did. And we, we quickly kind of hit on CDOs because I had, you know, heard a lot about the CDO market and knew a little bit about the CDO market. Um, and so once we started excavating the CDO market, and we, which really clearly was the, the nexus of the crisis, we started hearing about the hedge fund Magnetar and how few people had really known what was going on with that story and how that story had never really been told. And we homed in on Magnetar as our first story in the series. And that became the This American Life episode, Adam um, and Alex kind of shepherded that story and Jake and I worked on that. And then we worked on the series of stories. And yeah, we talked to uh, a lot of bankers um, for that, a lot of investment bankers. You know, we sort of surrounded the CDO market for that to try to get a handle on what Magnetar was doing. So we talked to CDO managers, we talked to CDO buyers, we talked to editors, you know, a lot of people. It was an incredible, people don't really remember this, but what happened was if you were skeptical about the bubble 
as an investor or investment banker, you lost your job in 2006 and 2007. You were you were regarded as uh, an old timer. Um, you you're ready for the glue factory, and so the people who were actually right were the victims <laughs> of the bubble. They suffered, yeah. and so they wanted to explain what happened. So you know, you there were a lot. There were a lot of things. You know, people were willing to talk on background about the cataclysm. And so, you know, we, we essentially found nobody would, would go on the record. A very small, small number of people would go on the record. And most people would talk on background. But they, there were a variety of way, reasons why they wanted to talk. Some of them wanted to brag about the deals that they had done. Some of them wanted to confess about the, the shit that they had pulled. And then some of them wanted, you know, were very bitter. I'm, I'm sure that's right. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting how this all came together. I, I wonder if you think you would have been able to do that reporting at one of the other outlets where you were earlier in your career, or if, you know, there's, there's something special or different about the place where you were at the time that you were working on these stories. Yeah, there was something special about those early days at ProPublica. I mean, there were common, it was a combination of things. It was the willingness to partner. So the traditional news outlet, we had a lot of traditional journalism DNA at ProPublica. Our editor-in-chief was Paul Steiger, the founding editor-in-chief, who had um, been my editor and the editor-in-chief, the, technically the managing editor at the Wall Street Journal. And then he had hired as his number two, the current editor-in-chief of ProPublica, Steve Engelberg, who had run the Portland Oregonian and been the investigations editor at the New York Times. So there's a lot of traditional um, journalism DNA, but it was a startup and we were a nonprofit and we were only doing investigative reporting. So that was all very experimental. And we, we were really interested in a lot of, as I say, experiments. And then having the radio connection and this American life connection, um, which the Planet Money guys have brought in the this American life guys, they were extraordinarily creative. I mean, one of the things happened was we, Ira Glass, who's the founder of you know, this American life is truly a genius. And the genius moment that I was able to witness was that we explained what was going on with CDOs and Magnetar. Your listeners might know about this. It's, it was a very complex trade, but essentially what they were doing is buying the equity tranche, the riskiest tranche of the CDO, so that they, which provided a little bit of return, but was clearly going to kind of blow up. But because they were able to sponsor the deal, the deal could get done. They, um, the bank could go off. They would keep the super senior and sell the middle, the mezzanine tranche. And then Magnetar secretly, um, although there was like a slightly open secret on Wall Street, was shorting the mezzanine. That was the big bet was to short, short the mezzanine, short your own deal. So yeah. it was like, and Ira Glass is sitting there and we're like explaining this thing to Ira, who's, you know, I mean, like if he's ever bought or sold a stock, you know, it, there's no indication that he knew any of this. So we're explaining mezzanine, this, and he says, this is really interesting. It's just like the producers, you know, the Mel Brooks yeah. mm -hmm. show, the producers where they create something to fail. And we should do this show as a musical. And I was like, this is so insane. Uh, like, this is the most complex thing I've ever tried to explain to anybody, and you now want to turn it into a musical. Um, but it was a kernel of an amazing a stroke of genius, and we actually did a song about it yeah. with these, like the actors on 
Broadway who were in the producers, they sang uh, Bet Against the American Dream song. They mm-hmm. composed and sang it. Um, that became a kind of viral hit. And the whole notion of the producers was very, uh, you know, was very accessible to yeah. To listeners, so yes, like that—that that kind of stuff just wouldn't have happened at a, a hidebound um, print news organization, um, and so that was that was all the kind of happenstance and um, incredible collaboration that came together. You know, it wasn't just my sort of working in a room and then coming up with this this these series of stories that just won the Pulitzer. It was yeah. All this is an amazing collaboration. That's you know, I, Kurt knows. Anytime you can work in a musical about a CPA. Jesse, I'm all about it. So maybe we'll put we'll put a link in the show notes yeah. to that to that song, and then uh, maybe uh, you know, Kurt, we can have you perform some of the lines uh, on a future yeah, it's episode. Too bad Sondheim is dead. Oh, we could uh, had a... get Sondheim, uh, yeah, with a big CPA musical. That would be a, the next great Broadway. It would, show. It, would it would probably make a lot less than Springtime for Hitler. So we'll save that yeah. for another one. Uh, you know, Jesse, obviously you've covered a lot of things at ProPublica. Uh, I think in the past two or three months, uh, you've done a, a significant series that's gotten a lot of attention for guys like me. Uh, I get the question all the time now, how do I structure my portfolio so I can limit my tax liability just <laughs> like those billionaires out there? So uh, the two things I want to hear about is is more about that story of the income tax uh, focus of, of the billionaires and the shelters and the other schemes they use. And second, you, you say it's all legal. People don't believe me when I tell them that. So uh, is it legal? And, and what kind of things were you covering in that ProPublica series? Yeah, um, well, it is shockingly legal. And um, I find it extraordinarily depressing that the take-home message um, from all these people is, how can I do it too? <laughs> um, uh, you know, I feel like we... Um, uh, there's been... We've spur- spawned a cottage industry of... Uh, of you know, advice about how to structure your portfolio like this is like, that's, that wasn't the point guys. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So yeah, this is um, another huge team effort from ProPublica and we've been doing it in fact, longer than months. We've been doing it all year. We ProPublica obtained a huge trove of secret tax information and we're not explaining um, anything about uh, or much about when we got it or how we got it, um, or what the source of sources are, because we want to protect the source mm-hmm. of sources. Um, but uh, it took us a lot. Uh, it took us a lot of time, months, to verify the information and um, put assemble it into a, uh, a a kind of useful frame to cull it for stories in the public interest. And then we assembled a huge team, an all star team at ProPublica. Um, and it's probably the biggest effort that ProPublica has ever put into one project mm. um, and have been doing stories about it uh, all all the time. And I was a big part of this series um, uh, and have been privileged to do so. We, I was the, uh, I and two of my colleagues, Paul Keel and Jeff Ernsthausen wrote the first story, which came out in June, which was about the top 25 richest Americans um, and their tax burden, mm-hmm. uh, and we we did an innovative measure. So we looked at their taxes, and one of the things we said is that these guys can go have in recent years literally paid zero in income tax. Um, so Bezos and Jeff Bezos in two recent years, and Elon Musk and George Soros and Michael Bloomberg and Carl Icahn. 
um, uh, and other billionaires have literally paid zero in income tax in recent years. Um, uh, there are some billionaires like Stephen Ross, the uh, commercial real estate guy who has literally paid zero for you know over a decade. Um, so he goes he goes huge periods of time. Charlie Kushner, um, um, other commercial real estate people, other oil and gas people go you know, can go a decade or more without paying any federal income tax. Um, and uh, and then we've done series of stories on other kinds of um, uh, tax avoidance schemes. But this is all uh, legal or um, or has not been. The only thing that we raised questions about in terms of legal activity is Peter Thiel's establishment of his five $5 billion Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. um, and that may have skirted the edge of the letter of the law, although he has not been um, audited for it. Uh, you know, or if the, the extent that there was an audit, uh, the IRS didn't actually um, you know, bring any penalties or any uh, uh, seek any back taxes from it. So, um, so all of this is uh, more or less more or less legal, and it has to do with the structure of our income tax system. I, I, that's interesting. I don't know if there's fodder for our accounting musical in there, but it's something to <laughs> something to keep in the back of your lyrics head. are flying through my head right now, Kurt. I'm ready. <laughs> I can only imagine. So, you know, we promised we were going to talk a little bit about your book, The Chicken Shit Club, and I'd like to transition and talk a little bit about that. You know, Chris gave a preview up top explaining how the name came from a speech uh, Jim Comey gave to some of the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York uh, many moons ago. Uh, but for our, our listeners who aren't familiar with the book, uh, first of all, I would highly recommend it. But to orient you, um, here is a, a little excerpt from a New York Times review. Quote, why was virtually no one prosecuted for causing the 2008 financial crisis, which devastated the global economy and cost the United States almost 9 million jobs? Some people think the fix is in. Bankers control the government so they can get away with anything. Others claim that the banks did nothing wrong to begin with. Or, alternatively, that there was insufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that anyone in particular committed a crime. In this new book, the ProPublica reporter Jesse Isinger tells a different story. Since the turn of the century, changes in the political landscape, the defense bar, the courts, and most important, the Justice Department, have undermined both the ability and the resolve of America's top prosecutors to go after corporations or their executives, end quote. Um, as I said, it's a fantastic book. You know, Jesse, you mentioned earlier how good the storytelling is over at NPR in This American Life. I think the storytelling in this book is fantastic. I mean, I, you know, some of the writing about um, what it was like to be in Stanley Sporkin's office, you know, the couch in the mm -hmm. corner and the briefcase mm -hmm. by the secretary's desk where people would stuff briefs. I mean, you 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 mixed in some of these really personal uh, little vignettes or stories that that sort of make you get a sense of what it was like to be there. So I think the storytelling is fantastic in this book. It's on Amazon, of course, if anybody wants to go out and buy it. Um, but, you know, how did you sort of pull the thesis together? And what was the reaction? I mean, you, you're you critical of, of what some folks at the SEC and DOJ have been doing over the last couple of decades. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I am critical. That's very, very nice, very flattering. I'm glad to hear it. And, I'm, and I love to hear that you wanted to be entertaining. I obviously wanted it to be entertaining and accessible 
too. So it's it's great to hear, and I and I strongly encourage your listeners to. Um, I, I tell everybody I meet that they should buy a copy of the book, at least two copies of the book. They don't have to read it, but they should, <laughs> yeah. they should buy it. Read the jacket, um, that's all. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, put it on your coffee table. Um, but uh, uh, so uh, I guess how did I arrive at the, the thesis? Well, I mean, the the what happened was we all witnessed the financial crisis and um, and then we had written those stories about the CDO business where I think we had uncovered wrongdoing. Um, and we waited for those uh, bankers to be um, charged in some way and nothing happened and we com- didn't understand it. Um, and so I started asking people what was going on. I was just curious, uh, like, why isn't anybody be pro- being prosecuted for any of this stuff um, and started piecing it together there. I had a column from the New York Times at that point and I uh, wrote a column about it. Then I thought this is you know important enough that I really I could write a bigger piece about it. So I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine about it. And then I thought, you know, this is actually a book topic. There's there is so much here, um, and it's really complex. Um, it's too complex and an argument to lay out just in an article. So you know, the argument is that prosecutors have lost the will and ability to prosecute top corporate executives. Um, and uh, that that happened largely because there was a backlash to the prosecutions of the kind of Enron era frauds um, uh, and prosecutors lost uh, a lot of tools and then lost the uh, ability and will to investigate properly. Um, There's a skill set decline. And what they found, what they replaced that with was settlements for money, you know, uh, uh, deferred prosecution agreements, non-prosecution agreements, occasionally uh, guilty pleas after they got criticized, they entered into guilty pleas, which were essentially the same thing, um, just kind of semantic change, um, and they weren't charging individuals. Um, and, uh, and then I think in the wake of publishing, uh, I think you could argue that my book was understated matters because when the Trump administration came in and there were all the scandals of the Trump administration, it became clear that there were whole swaths of the economy outside of major corporations that were really under-policed, like uh, commercial real estate, taxes, um, you know, campaign finance, uh, all these areas there where there was sort of rampant fraud and criminality um, and uh, that, you know, the Trump organization and the Trump administration was certainly um, adjacent to, if not committing. Um, And so, you know, I think we've gone through a long period of time where white collar crime has been um, on the back burner uh, and that this has led to a cascading effect of uh, a lack of accountability and coupled with the decline at the IRS and the lack of auditing for the wealthy, I think we have a, uh, what I consider my beat to be is elite impunity, mm-hmm. that we have um, a swath of the powerful who um, really have the ultimate perquisite of wealth and power, which is that they um, have impunity to commit crimes um, and, uh, and that there's no accountability for their actions. And so, you know, it, so we've, this is a byproduct of the uh, expanding wealth inequality that we've 
um, suffered in this country for 30 years and um, and it's poisoning uh, our democracy, I think. I mean, we, we have a decline in the rule of law, a collapse in the fairness uh, and equity in our society, um, and that uh, this is undermining faith in our economy and our political institutions and our um, and our legal institutions. And, and so I think that you know, our, our democracy crisis has to do with um, this kind of lack of faith, um, which uh, because we've seen a lack of accountability for um, the rich and powerful. Well, I know we don't want to leave our listeners without hope, Jesse. And, and in recent months, we've seen from the, the Department of Justice and the SEC, some of their leadership, uh, the Enforcement Director, Gabir Grewal, and uh, the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, both speak out in October, November this year about a renewed sense of pursuing individual accountability uh, in their actions and their enforcement focus, as well as requiring admissions and settlements instead of the traditional no admit, no deny uh, issues that you touched on. I mean, you've seen this from all angles. Do you feel that those uh, statements are going to lead to a change or are we still going to see similar to what you've talked about, uh, you know, just extending longer into the future? Yeah, I, I think that's remarkable, and uh, I've been heartened by it. Um, you know, Kurt, you asked me what the reactions have been. The uh, you know initially the official um, the official reaction to my book was nothing, it was silence. Um, you know, not acknowledging that it existed or that the critique was out there. Um, you know, when Eric Holder um, or Preet Bharara were asked about this, they would just sort of scoff and deny it um, um, and never sort of mention their critics. And I'm not the only critic, but really never mention them by name or acknowledge them or engage with the argument at all, um, which is kind of remarkable. Uh, but uh, I think that there were um, tacit admissions here and there that, um, uh, that there was a big problem. And then I think the um, Bill Barr tenure at the DOJ was very eye-opening for um, for a lot of kind of centrist, uh, left of center um, establishment Democrats because they saw uh, how dangerous it could be to have a Department of Justice that was uh, a plaything of the President of the United States or um, you could be used as a tool to um, be or a weapon to go after the president's enemies as a shield to protect the, um, the president's friends, um, and that a lack of independence by the AG was a real threat to democracy. And so, you know, so the DOJ, which I think was undergoing a, a crisis of confidence in the Holder years, then went under uh, underwent a crisis, a, an institutional collapse that. Um, was an order of magnitude more serious um, under Bill Barr. And so now you have Garland and you have Monaco and they're coming in and they're kind of restoration figures. Um, and it's not clear to me that they've succeeded in um, rebuilding the credibility of the DOJ, but they're certainly, their rhetoric is on the uh you, acknowledging this and Monaco's rhetoric on white collar crime is certainly um, impressive, and um, and I'm heartened by it. Um, and I, you know, I feel I feel like I uh, I contributed a little bit to it. So I'm I'm glad that you know it turns out that somebody was listening. Um, uh, you know, I as I say, I'm 
far from the only one who's done this. You know, there are more prominent legal minds uh, and voices like uh, Judge Jed Rakoff and uh, Columbia University Professor Jack Coffey, who have spoken out on this. And I, you know, I was I contributed to this, um, uh, I think. And I think that there is an acknowledgement that there is a big, big problem. They have not yet fixed the problem. Um, they have not prosecuted high-level executives from large corporations. Um, they have not prosecuted uh, high-level people in, um, you know, in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. Uh, you know, we haven't seen, um, we haven't seen uh, a top-level executive, uh, you know, from sort of tech, the tech world. We saw Elizabeth Holmes, who's a kind of, um, you know, cult figure, uh, but really a minor um, a minor kind of uh, celebrity figure rather than a you know someone of significant um, economic influence and power. So you know we we would wait to see that, but the um, uh, the rhetoric is good, is on the right side. Yeah, yeah I was hoping that uh, maybe you would say that you're looking forward to a less chicken shitty enforcement regime. <laughs> I might have taken it a bit too far. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, they're they're talking tough. Mm -hmm. They're, uh, um, yeah, we saw you know, it's hard to win a trial. So the Elizabeth Holmes trial was not chicken shittery. Um, the uh, Jelaine Maxwell trial was not chicken shittery. So you know, we've got, we're we're seeing some things. Um, but on the other hand, you know, uh, and this isn't federal, but we're seeing the DA and the AG move very very slowly on the Trump organization, mm -hmm. and the DOJ um, punted on the Trump organization. So there are chicken shittery elements that are still coursing through um, the uh, prosecutorial um, institutions and edifice. Uh, so not everything has been solved, but there is some acknowledgement now of the problem at the highest echelon. And I think that's, you know, you you got to acknowledge a problem before you can start to solve it. This is uh, the old AA line is right. true. That's an interesting segue. Speaking of problems that need solving, we were going to... Oh, there's a segue into like my, my addiction problem. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. We'll save We've that for We've all got our voices, episode. Jesse. Yeah. We've all got our voices. Do I, or sound that I like, uh, like I sound like I'm on drugs. We, uh, yeah. we want to talk a little bit about the show Succession before we wrap up today. Um, as, as, I, uh -huh. as I mentioned, you know, you on, on season three, you've been working as a consultant on the show. Um Chris, somehow I became like the summary guy on this episode. So You're crushing for, it. Yeah. For, the, for <laughs> any of our listeners who haven't seen HBO's hit series, Succession, uh, it follows the story of an aging business mogul uh, played by the excellent Brian Cox, who for better or worse, I always think of as Uncle Argyle from Braveheart. Uh, mm -hmm. But Brian Cox plays Logan Roy, who is the head of the international media conglomerate that is controlled by his family and bears the family name. It also tracks his children, Kendall, Shiv, Roman, and of course, Connor. Do you have a Connor joke for me, Chris? Oh yeah, we always forget that he's one of the one of, <laughs> one of Logan's kids, but there he is. He'll remind you. Uh, and, he's the oldest. Yeah, that's right. And of course, they're following the family as they struggle with with scandal and volatile markets, and of course, the need for a succession plan. So uh, without any spoilers, uh, of course, Jesse, um, you know, tell us a little bit about the show. What are the themes that sort of, you know, peek out for you? And, and tell us a little bit about your role. Uh, well, I mean, it's a brilliant show um, spearheaded by a guy named Jesse Armstrong, who, um, you know, if you're not familiar with his work, you should just 
look at everything he's done. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's just a genius, another one of these geniuses. And I was brought in in a kind of very narrow way um, to because at the end of the second season, um, Kendall Roy accuses Logan and the company uh, Waystar uh, Royco of of white collar crime um, or white collar crime and some actual sort of you know street crime of uh, you know uh, tossing um, uh, hookers over the uh, the edge of uh, cruise ships and things like that um, and uh, all sorts of dastardly corporate deeds and so at the beginning of the third. Season, they are dealing with the fallout from these accusations, and they wanted to um, talk to me about how that would play out uh, in the real world. And what I was most impressed about was that they really took verisimilitude seriously. And I think it's one of the shows that's the most realistic depiction of corporate America and power in America um, in the media in America and, uh, and then in white collar crime and punishment in America too. Um, and, uh, I get, you know, the, the season is out. And so we know all that the things that have happened. Um, so I think if you're planning to watch the show, plug your ears right now, cause I am <laughs> going to, uh, spoil it, which is that, um, the white collar prosecution is a red herring in the season. Mm. Um, uh, because it melts away which I think is very realistic, certainly realistic to a uh, pre-Lisa Monaco DOJ. Mm. And um, uh, so there's a lot, of, um, a lot of crime, but the prosecutors essentially throw up their hands uh, and um, realize that they can't really prosecute anybody and they're gonna settle with uh, Waystar for lots and lots of money which causes a little bit of inconvenience for the company, but really not much. Um, and I thought that was very realistic. And I, um, you know, they, they picked my brain and they would, um, uh, they asked me a, a million questions and, uh, and some of the things I didn't know and I have to have to research. And they had another lawyer, a former prosecutor and now defense attorney, uh, Matt Friedrich, um, also consulting, um, which is a little daunting because of course I'm not a lawyer. Mm. Um, so I, I sort of play one uh, as a consultant on TV, but I'm not uh, an actual lawyer. Um, so, you know, uh, he and I would get scripts and we'd say, they wouldn't say this, they would say this, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. And then they would go back and really script the thing. But they, what was amazing to me is, so it's a very funny show. It's not a comedy, but it's a very funny show. And um, there are all sorts of great lines. And what would happen was you would see a great line, a really funny joke, but you'd say sometimes, you know, that's a funny joke, but it really wouldn't work this way. Um, or this, it's not, you know, it, it, that doesn't make sense, or it's it's not realistic, it's not appropriate in this scenario. Um, and they would take it out 100% of the time. They would sacrifice the great joke for um, realism. Mm. And I thought that was really impressive. Um, it's because they're brilliant writers and they can come up with another incredible yeah. <laughs> joke. Um, but, uh, but, you know, uh, I don't think many shows would do that because they just enjoy the joke so much. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that sticks with me reflecting back before we talked to you for this episode is very little of the show has anything to do with the actual business of Waystar Royco. You know, <laughs> there's true. parks and there's cruises and there's, you know, obviously an entertainment arm of it, but, but so much is about the interaction between, you know, the executives, if you will, whether you believe that they're doing anything to forward the company or not. 
Um, and then obviously the dialogue, like you said, is just insane uh, in terms of the way that they uh, they talk to each other. I've been working with PLI's corporate counsel. We actually are not allowed to use any quotations from any of the Roy siblings <laughs> at any point throughout it because of their vulgarity and their terrible lines. Of course. Uh, one of yeah. my favorites uh, comes from this most recent uh, season in which uh, Greg, everyone's favorite character, Greg, is uh, talking to his confidant, Tom Wamsgans, about potentially asking out a European royal on a date. And Tom responds with, Greg, that's like a haunted scarecrow asking out Jackie Onassis. Uh, I laugh at the haunted scarecrow reference all the time. Jesse, I got to know, how many lines are, are you? Uh, can we give you credit for in some of the best back and forth between the characters? Yeah, uh, from the best back and forth, zero. Okay. I, um, <laughs> the procedural I, uh, I was, lines about corporate governance yeah, was, or shareholder uh, vote. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I was uh, responsible for like one or two lines where... Um, where a guy says uh, we should hire, you know, they uh, they they'll say something like, "Well, we got to have the dag fired" or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, so you know, um, I got some of the technical stuff Excellent. right. Although at, there's one point that they the writers um, threw me a bone where Kendall, the son, is kind of upset about having met with the prosecutors and he wants to um, goad them and he has a loud conversation with his defense attorney in within earshot of the prosecutors where he calls them chicken shit. Excellent. Um, and so that was actually, so that was like the high, I, that's a highlight of <laughs> my career actually. Um, <laughs> that's great. And you know, for, for my friends that were listening, they're like, hey, yeah, <laughs> we know, know where that came from. Was, everybody else was probably, you know, just, um, uh, <laughs> that went over their heads. But mm-hmm. That was, so that that's was great. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you talked about how one of the red herrings is the, the prosecution and it, it fades away a little bit. I mean, that, there's sort of a theme there. Like the, the family overcomes a lot. There you know, investigations, takeovers, congressional hearings, a, a press release that is famously interrupted by uh, by a Nirvana song in the background. Um, <laughs> you know, but they always seem to, to come out unscathed. The point is that Logan Roy is like the Teflon Don. So, I mean, what what do you think uh, totally. going forward? Is he going to just, is he always going to, you know, win, 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 no matter what? Well, uh, yeah, I have no insight into what season four is going to be, but I think what there are two major themes. One is that they're on, these people are untouchable by, um, they're off in their own universe um, and they cannot be held accountable um, in any way. They're not held accountable by, society um they can't get embarrassed um they uh they can't be shamed their greed is overwhelming overarching greed and overweening greed they get you know is the thing that they are driven by is power and greed and um and nothing can really stop them or hinder them except another force that's even greedier or more powerful like um the tech executive who uh uh, played by Alexander Skarsgård, who comes at the end. Um, uh, so I think that's one of the most important themes of the of the show. And then the other theme is how rotten their lives are. I mean, it's not just that they're rotten people, but they're just miserable people. Um, they're torturing each other, and um, their wealth and privilege does not confer um, anything remotely resembling happiness or contentment. Um, and I don't think that they know what they want. They don't, you know, they don't know themselves. They don't have any um, goals or interests or desires. They're empty vessels to just express um, power uh, and privilege. And, um, you know, I, I, 
I think what it, they have all these beautiful settings um, and you know, beautiful homes and perfect clothing, but uh, they clearly are. And I have nothing to do with this depiction, but I uh, I think it's so impressive. It's such a good show um, that they're trying to emphasize how how miserable and empty and unfulfilling um, these lives are, and how pointless these people are. Um, and uh, you know, and and I think that that's uh, an impressive, interesting um, depiction. I like how you kind of test your beat, uh, you know, your coverage is elite impunity. I think we see that, uh, you know, on almost every episode of Succession, especially in season three. Yeah, no question. All right, Daniel, cue the music. We're going to jump into our lightning round here with Jesse Isinger. We've got a a stable of questions around uh, the show Succession, Jesse. Some trivia, uh, some either or. We hope to, to have fun. And we ask that you respond quickly. Say as fast as, uh, you know, maybe Roman Roy would make you feel uncomfortable uh, in terms of how quickly he'll respond. So we'll kick it off (laughs) here with a softball for you. Season three had many great marquee events and locations. We're going to give you the hypothetical. You can only pick to attend one of these following three events. Would you rather be on the Roy's mega yacht in the Mediterranean at Kendall's 40th birthday party? And yes, you can go into the treehouse. Or invited to the ornate Tuscan wedding of the Roy children's mother and her Italian gold-digging new husband. Oh, Tuscany all the way. Mm-hmm. No question. That's quite, <laughs> quite the experience and quite the event. That, that's pretty good. Although, I can't imagine being at a birthday party like that either. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you know, if you get into the right room, that's <laughs> yeah. A lot can happen. Uh, all right, switching gears a little bit here. I don't know if you've seen, but there is a YouTube video that edits scenes from Succession to uh, retell it as a rom-com or a love story between Tom and Greg. Uh, oh, yes. It, yeah. <laughs> is that a fair take on the show? Is this really just a love story? Oh, I, you know, it didn't even occur to me until I saw the analysis when I was reading it. But yes, it's obviously a love story. The, the whole Sporus thing, you yeah. know, uh, Nero kills his wife and That's right. Sporus and, the, and Tom <laughs> says that. And at the end, they have this pack. Um, it is uh, is close to more than platonic. That's right. <laughs> it's uh, what does he say? He wants you to be my Rottweiler, my, my Greg Weiler, if you will, uh, comes from that. That's great. Um, a little bit of trivia here for you. One of the most overlooked events in season three as it was going on was during the kind of awkward siblings, uh, you know, feel out of who's on whose side that happened at Kendall's ex-wife's apartment. Uh, this, this event hinted at a future betrayal. Do you recall what the special delivery was at the apartment and who it came from? Oh, yeah. Donut. That's right. <laughs> from uh, Logan. That's right. Somehow Logan knew. Malevolent donut. That's yes. right. Knew that they were all meeting and, and had donuts there. Again, there, there's a few spoilers here. We'll leave out where the donuts may have been tipped off to come from. But That's the scariest donut in the history of television. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's our quote for this show. That's uh, right. <laughs> all right. Last last one. Uh, so we, you're putting together uh, the Jesse Isinger Media Empire. Uh, and so Waystar, Isinger Co., uh, you know, is getting to the point where you got to start thinking about succession. So who are you going to choose? Uh, it, you know, your, your firstborn presidential hopeful know-it-all, uh, your heir apparent, uh, yet wildly insecure second son, uh, your driven and savvy yet inexperienced daughter, or your immature and embarrassingly impish youngest son. 
Oh, I, I got to go the Logan route and uh, call an audible and get in, uh, you know, the dreamy Scandinavian uh, <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård to save list. my empire. That's right, the Gojo uh, CEO. I uh, yeah, I can't. I cannot uh, give the empire over to any of these awful, inadequate <laughs> morons. I, I think he calls them Cretans or morons. Um, they are uh, one step up from imbeciles. So yes, they're very articulate and they can't do anything right. And you, couldn't, you wouldn't let them run, you know, run a uh, a kid's uh, a kid's lollipop stand. <laughs> uh, we we promise not to edit that, so that commentary sounds like it came in the chicken shit section of this. Uh, That's of right. This <laughs> Awesome, Jesse. Well, thanks so much for taking some time today. Uh, you know, we're, we're very excited to keep following you at, at ProPublica and, and maybe on Succession Season 4. Any more consulting to come? or uh, I don't know. Okay. Stay tuned on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's much white-collar uh, stuff anymore, so mm-hmm. uh, I, that glory, those glory days might be over. My, my career is just on a downslope. <laughs> yeah. hey. um, but uh, any of your listeners, if they uh, have... Um, uh, consulting ideas, or if they have tips about, you know, guilty conscience, mm. and they want to come to me with um, with corporate ma- stories of corporate malfeasance. My my uh, my lines are open, as they say. Excellent. Be sure to reference listening to the Insecurities podcast when you reach out to Jesse with some of those tips. That'll be a good <laughs> good referral source. Well, thanks again, Jesse, for taking the time today. It was Thank great you. speaking with you. Okay. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Jesse Isinger of ProPublica. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.